You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Fancy Bear's latest campaign is using malware reported to VirusTotal by U.S. Cyber Command. IBM's X-Force looks at cybersecurity for travelers and shares a bunch of horror stories. Security Scorecard looks at the online security of political parties in the U.S. and Europe. Some are better than others, but all could use some help. Updates on Huawei and other Chinese companies facing U.S. sanctions. And if you're listening to this in the U.S., you may believe you know more than, in fact, you do. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, May 22, 2019. Fancy Bear, Russia's GRU, is actively exploiting malware U.S. Cyber Command reported to VirusTotal last week. CyberScoop says many found the warning useful and welcomed CyberCom's heads up. Kaspersky Lab and Checkpoint's Zone Alarm have been tracking the attacks and say that the malware in use looks like the X-Tunnel tool Fancy Bear used against the U.S. Democratic National Committee in early 2016. The malware comes in a big and noisy package, a bit more than 3 megabytes in size. U.S. Cyber Command did not attribute the malware to a Russian intelligence service or indeed to any other threat actor. But lots of other people have, and in general, Cyber Command has enjoyed good notices for posting the malware to VirusTotal. Forewarned is, or at least can be, forearmed. And some hope that such reporting might serve a useful deterrent purpose. An IBM X-Force study of cybersecurity for travelers features a flurry of make-your-flesh-creep tales that amount to a cyberspace version of Gan Wilson's classic Paranoid Abroad, You know, the old cartoon series where the paranoid orders the national dish in some foreign land and is served rats in white cream sauce or where rude stevedores defile the paranoid's luggage. Anywho, vacation season approaches, and so people are reading the X-Force piece and considering where they might safely travel. Forbes takes away the lesson that you'd have to be out of your mind to use an airport USB charging station and also the lesson that criminals are in avid pursuit of your travel reward points. Airline miles, hotel loyalty points, any of that stuff. So where might you safely travel? Well, the joke's on you, traveler. Apparently, nowhere. Thanks, IBM. We'll take a staycation this year. But actually, Big Blue does have some practical tips for both businesses and holiday travelers. First, keep an eye on your loyalty rewards. They're easy for criminals to monetize, so watch for any use that you can't quite account for. Second, do choose your Wi-Fi with caution. Setting up a Wi-Fi network in a public place is easy for criminals to accomplish. And even legitimate Wi-Fi services are easy enough to compromise for eavesdropping. Consider using a VPN. Third, those helpful USB charging stations around airports and similar transit points? 
They can be easily finagled to download your data or install malware on a device. IBM suggests carrying your own spare battery pack and, if you must charge, use a traditional wall plug. Fourth, turn off any connectivity you don't need. If you don't need Bluetooth, for example, turn it off. Fifth, remember that your physical spoor can also be useful to bad actors. So shred tickets, boarding passes, luggage tags, and so forth. Don't just chuck them in the trash intact. Finally, don't use debit cards in dodgy places. That is, don't use them at establishments that may not have good point-of-sale protections. Mom and Pop may be as honest as the day is long, but who knows what's lurking in their card reader. And if you use an ATM, find one in a relatively well-observed location, like a bank or the interior of an airport, not one out back of Leon's house of tire chains. Cyber risk analytics and vulnerability assessment firm Risk-Based Security recently published their Q1 data breach report. Inga Godin is executive vice president at Risk-Based Security, and she joins us to share their findings. One of my biggest takeaways is that despite all of the all of the effort and all of the resources that have been dedicated to you know, protecting our systems, protecting our most valuable data, uh, we're still losing the fight, I think. Hmm. You know, we're still losing a lot of sensitive information uh, really at an alarming rate. You know, we hit a new high for Q1 of 2019 with the most most disclosed breach events for a first quarter hmm. since we've been tracking uh, such events. Um, so it's, it's a little um, unsettling to see that we continuously have um, more and more breaches happening. What I'd like to also share is that, you know, one of my other observations um, that I take away from the report is that, you know, as much as we we like to focus on things like, you know, the ever-changing threat landscape, which is important because, you know, actors do change their methods quite a bit. Um, I think what I see quarter after quarter, year after year, is that really the tried and true methods for getting at sensitive information just keep happening over and over again, right? You know, if we can, if we can fish a user, if we can get them to give up uh, some credentials, that's going to get us a access into a system, and we can poke around, maneuver around, escalate from there, and see what we can get. Um, and we just we see these same patterns repeat, repeating, you know, month after month, year after year. So, uh, you know, I think the fundamentals still apply. <laughs> it's one of my biggest takeaways. Yeah. You know, from our perspective, when we look at, you know, the broad strokes of what's happening uh, breach-wise and security-wise, um, really taking a step back from the weeds and really thinking about what are my most likely threats to the risks that I have? Where am I vulnerable and what, what's most likely to cause me pain? And working your processes around what's really, truly your highest uh, risks, that's what's going to produce the best results for you in, in the long run, the best mm. security outcomes for you in the long run. Do you find that there are some common misperceptions or, or things that uh, folks don't think to ask about? The first question that I think most buyers ask is, what does this cover? Mm. Um, and I would almost flip that on its head and ask, all right, I see that you're covering X, Y, and Z. Um, under what circumstances does that not apply? When might that insurance policy not respond to a specific situation? Um, so I think that can shed a little more light on the pros and cons of the individual policies being evaluated. 
Yeah, it's interesting because it, it strikes me that um, you know insurance is part of uh, the spectrum of defenses that you have for your organization of, of managing risk and and dialing it in. You know, you have uh, uh, technical solutions, you have uh, things with personnel, with training, and so forth. But uh, you know, this is uh, another tool that you have at your disposal to make sure you're protecting your assets. Oh, absolutely, and it is a phenomenal tool. I am a big believer in working an insurance policy, a cyber, a cyber insurance policy into that whole risk management mix um, because it really does bring a lot of value to offsetting the financial losses that can come along with a data security event. Um, and it covers, the policies can cover everything from that immediate out-of-pocket expense about um, oh gosh, I need to pay for a forensic investigator. I need to uh, set up credit monitoring for the impacted individuals. I need to, you know, comply with all these different state reporting requirements. You know, the insurance policy can step in immediately and start to help pay for the hard costs of that Im immediate response. And it can travel with you throughout the life cycle of that breach event all the way through to its resolution. Even you know, ending up with if you have lost income. It's a key component of managing the financial downside. I do think it's important to put it in perspective though, and what the insurance policy does is manage that financial downside. There's a lot of other downside that can come along with a breach event that the insurance policy is really not equipped or there to, to handle or respond to. And you know that's gonna be things like your reputation in the industry, you know, shaking customer confidence. Um, maybe your revenues fall because new customers aren't coming on board or new, new clients aren't signing up with your service. You know, so there, there are boundaries there for what a policy can do for you, but what it provides is much greater than what it doesn't. That's Inga Godin from Risk-Based Security. They just published their Q1 data breach report. Security Scorecard has a review of major U.S. and European political parties' cybersecurity posture. There's room for improvement across the board. But for some reason, the U.S. Democrats continue to present hackers with low-hanging fruit. In any case, they lag the Republicans in security preparation, but at least they score higher than the Libertarians, which might surprise some. Considered nation-by-nation, nation, French political parties came with the lowest overall scores, and also led the race to the bottom in application security and DNS health. Poland ranked at the bottom in network security, and Spain brought up the rear in patching cadence. Who did well? Swedish political parties did, tops overall, and best in show for application security, DNS health, and patching cadence. Huawei has a temporary 90-day reprieve from some of the consequences of its placement on the U.S. entity list, but U.S. officials suggest that neither the company nor the Chinese government should misread this as a sign of softening. Commerce Secretary Ross says it's just breathing space to give U.S. firms an opportunity to make alternative arrangements. Other Chinese companies may be in line for the Huawei treatment. The Verge suggests drone maker DJI is likely to come under a lot of scrutiny for the way its flying machines report back to China. The New York Times thinks surveillance vendor Hikvision could be next. In Hikvision's case, the primary issues involve concerns about human rights. The Chinese government is believed to be making heavy use of Hikvision cameras for surveillance and attendant repression of the country's Muslim Uyghur minority. 
Hikvision has said it takes U.S. rights concerns very seriously. And finally, in Dog Bites Man news, a Google Harris poll survey shows that Americans think they know a lot more about online security than in fact they do. We'll refrain from saying that our brothers and sisters over here in the Great Republic think that about roughly any topic you might name, and we'll just leave it at Dog Bites Man. Bad dog. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research for the Sands Institute. He's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, you know, we've seen so many stories about uh, things like Magecart, uh, people's websites uh, being uh, vulnerable, being compromised. Uh, how do folks keep track of what is on their websites? Yeah, the problem we had is, in particular with uh, groups like Magecart and such, is they actually not so much attack your specific website. Uh, they attack these libraries and such that you're using in your website and that you may include in your site, uh, but actually you don't host these libraries. Hmm. They're hosted at some vendor, so the vendor gets compromised, the library gets altered on the vendor system, and then you're just blindly including the code. And if you go to your average website and you know, pull up sort of the developer view in, in your browser, you often can see that there is like you know, dozens of different websites uh, that your browser connects to in order to load all these libraries. 
So if you ask the owner, and I've done this in some cases when, we, when we're teaching, uh, how many uh, libraries do you actually include? They, they often have no idea that they're including that many. They may be able to tell you that they're using something like jQuery and such. They sort of usually get the top three or four, right? But uh, anything beyond that, uh, they often don't even remember that they included that code. Hmm. And so how do you go about auditing uh, those things that are being run by third parties? So as a very first step, you should get a list of what's there and why it's there. What I've sometimes seen is that there's sort of this thing with developers. You, know, you, you put the particular feature on, some marketing person asked for it to count visitors better. Uh, a year later, you see that code, you don't remember what it does, but you leave it there just because it may break something if you remove it. So you know, first, inventory what you have and make sure it's actually still required. Now, the second thing you should do is host as much of it as you can in-house. So on your servers, that way it becomes your responsibility to keep it secure and all the other things that you do for your own source code, sort of source code, uh, pick in and um, you, know, you can use that uh, to protect uh, this particular code that doesn't get altered. Now, there will be a small handful of uh, libraries and such that you cannot host themselves. Hmm. Uh, there are sometimes uh, these marketing libraries and so where the vendor actually makes some custom modifications for each user for better user tracking. Now, again, you can decide, do I really want to do this? Uh, is it worth the risk to track my users a little bit better than I already do? Uh, but uh, then what you can do is there's a little trick that may help and doesn't always work. But browsers include a feature called SRI or sub-resource integrity. What this does is in the script tag that you're using to load this library from this vendor, you actually also include a hash, a checksum uh, for uh, this particular library. So if it now gets altered, uh, then the browser will refuse to load it. This is a great trick if you don't want to host it yourself, but be aware if now the vendor modifies the library, they have to coordinate that with you. Now, uh, one thing, of course, you can do is have some script that keeps downloading these libraries, let's say once an hour, and make sure that these checksums are still right. If they're not right, then you know, contact the vendor, check if it's a legitimate change, or you know, maybe you may help out your vendor here by notifying them that they just got breached. Yeah, I mean, it's. I guess as always, I mean, it's sort of um, constant vigilance uh, is in your best interest. Yes, and it's really hard to sort of come up with good signatures for this malicious JavaScript. It keeps changing all the time, so I wouldn't really rely too much on antivirus and the like. Probably good change management is really important here, vetting your vendors. And I think in the end, you really have to look carefully at is it worth the trouble to include all that code or... Is it maybe just better uh, not to do business with companies that don't allow you to host the code yourself? Hmm. All right. Well, uh, it's a good insight as always. Um, Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.